Welcome, Ian Gordon, from all the way from Singapore, actually. Um, you, the National University of Singapore History Department, trained as a historian at the University of Rochester for your PhD, and one of the sort of preeminent scholars of comics. Welcome, Ian. Hi, I'm Frederick. Thanks. Um, so, Ian, this is kind of crazy, right? You're, you are Australian, you work, uh, you, you're sort of head of the his history department, National University of Singapore, you got your PhD at the University of Rochester, and you're like known as the comics guy. Um, how, what's your origin story? How did you get to this place, and why do this work? Um, well, there's, there's short versions and long versions. Um, the short version is that, well, no, I'll give you a slightly longer version. When I was a kid, I read comics and I read comic books uh, in Australia and they were reprints, mostly of DC comics. Um, and I was kind of, you know, as a kid, I loved Batman more than Superman. Um, and then I discovered Marvel comics and those were great. Uh, and, you know, I was very fortunate. We also had the English um, comics, uh, comic weeklies, things like Beano and Dandy uh, and Eagle. Uh, and I just found them interesting. And at various points, I outgrew them, or at least I thought I did. Uh, I remember I stopped reading comics. And then I was some housemates once when I was... Um, 20 or so, or maybe 19, they had all read comics and we were talking about them and we rushed out and bought a bundle of them. And then I read them again for a while and then pretty much I kept reading them. Then when I was an undergraduate, I was looking for, in Australia, you, when I studied, you um, spent a year um, studying once a, a single course. So I, I did history. Um, after second year, you would spend third and fourth year just doing two courses. Um, and then in your fourth year, you would write a 20,000 word honors thesis. And in my third year, I was looking for a topic and I thought, you know, Baby Huey. And hmm, where can I look at Baby Huey comics? And I, I happen to know Randy Scott already because I worked a few years in libraries before I went to university dropped out of school. Um, and uh, so I knew Randy by mail back in the days of snail mail. And so I, I corresponded with Randy and I realized, because there was no internet, um, and he told me, yeah, we've got to run a baby Huey here at Michigan State University in their special collection, their fabulous comics collection. Um, you know, there's two great state universities with comics, Ohio State and, and Michigan State. So I saved up all my money and um, while I was a student, uh, went during a, a vacation um, period and uh, went to Michigan State and realized, oh, I can't do Baby Huey. I don't know enough about um, American history and all the background of this. And my idea is a good idea, but I just can't approach the subject without a lot more knowledge. So anyway, then, oh, what was I going to do? So I ended up doing an honours thesis on Australian, broadly speaking, comic art, political cartoons, uh, comic strips, and um, some comic books and their importance in Australian culture. 
Then I went to the United States to do my PhD in, in American history. And um, like all graduate students, I scrambled every summer to, well, maybe not all graduate students, but I scrambled every summer to find um, some money to live on over the summer. And uh, I got a 10 week fellowship at the Smithsonian Institution, which was just extraordinarily lucky. And I uh, said I was going to do something on comic art. And I was meant to be at the National Museum of American Art, but the curator left. So I ended up at the National Museum of American History. And you, you could just sit down and do your own work um, and think through what it is you wanted to do. And I, so I sat down and I read Frederick Wortham's The Seduction of the Innocent, which I kind of glanced at before, but not read carefully. And he had a line in there about how comic strips weren't a problem. And I went, hmm, that's interesting. And around the same time, um, uh, an art historian named Rebecca Surya um, was around in DC. She'd been at the Smithsonian and she told me about the Swan Foundation for Caricature and Cartoon Dissertation Fellowship. And it was, this is <clears throat> quite a few years ago now, it was $10,000. And I was like, wow. Okay, so let me think of a topic and apply for that because I was going to do a dissertation on New York intellectuals, but four books had come out and I didn't know any foundations that were going to potentially give me $10,000 to do a dissertation on that. So I got the Swan Foundation um, um, uh, Fellowship, uh, which I remember shaking because I got a check for $10,000 which was the most money I'd ever seen at one time, and uh, moved to DC from Rochester and uh, spent um, two years working on my dissertation in the basement of the Library of Congress a lot of the time, looking at newspapers on microfiche uh, film because we didn't have you know, ProQuest uh, databases or newspaper.com. So that's kind of how I got into it. Um, and the result of that was my PhD, which became Comic Strips in Consumer Culture. So it's a sort of not quite completely by accident, but also a little bit by accident. And in fact, um, kind of almost materially necessary, right? With that nice fellowship that you had kind of leading you in this direction. Um, so since then, of course, you've published numerous books on uh, comics, comic books, comic strips, film and comics. Why does it matter? <laughs> well, the comic strips in consumer culture is, is really a work of history. And it's trying to look at the way that changes in American society um, and uh, can be understood if you follow a particular form of art, if you like, or a commercial form of art uh, through various in incarnations. So comics, as we kind of think of them in America, they kind of come to prominence in a way in, in a lot of journals, but I focused on Puck, Life and Judge, which were what I'd call illustrated humor journals. And that is, they had a lot of cartoons. Some of those kind of looked a bit like comic strips, although often without word balloons. A lot of political cartoons and a lot of written textual humor. 
And those led into the what became uh, humor supplements in uh, larger New York papers like The World and then later on Earth's um, uh, Journal American. And then in those papers, eventually around the turn of the 20th century, you got what we would think of now as comic strips. But these all reflect changes in population, uh, in education levels. People were able to read the comics because there was a high rate of literacy. Um, and it also reflects a reorganization of society, uh, the massive expansion of New York uh, from about a million people in 1850 and, and I think only about 300,000 in 1830 to 3 million by 1900, the development of printing presses, uh, the development of a national market where um, there are uh, railroads that are connecting cities and taking newspapers from one city to another. So all of these, I, I argue in that first book, you, you, can, you can look at through the way that comic art developed into this highly commercial um, and very lucrative for, for the most uh, prominent artists uh, form, which is comic strips. So having done that, um, I was looking for sort of what other things can you do? And, and um, Comics and Ideology as, as a book, I'm the third editor on that. And um, that, that's a project that Matthew P. McAllister at uh, Penn State University initiated. And um, I joined in on that and contributed a piece on Superman, uh, which <laughs> once again is just a funny story. I was I was in Australia, uh, back in Australia from the US, and I was cooking dinner and had the TV on in the background, and Lois and Clark came on, and it was one of season one. I I can't remember. It's a very early episode. I and I was looking at. And I was like, wait a minute, this is direct from a Superman comic book. So I then tried to write an article about that for the popular press and it didn't get accepted. And then as everybody, you know, I needed a conference paper and I dusted that off. And then Matt asked me to join this project. And so I dusted off that piece and it, it became an essay. And that, that's where I started a, a chapter in that book. And that's where I started looking at Superman in, in in broader ways um, than, than I've done earlier. Film and comic books, I mean, this is a behind the scenes of academia, why people do things. I got made the head of my department. Um, this is my first uh, tour of duty as head of department. And I realized, you know, it's a very administrative heavy role and I'm not gonna get a lot of work done. So I decided, well, you know, there hasn't been a book on, on film and comic books um, of any substance. And this is in 2004, 2005. And I thought, I think I can edit a book on this, but I, I, I need some help. So I went to my co-editors um, on that and we put together a proposal and, um, and, and we did that book, which there's some fabulous essays in that. No, there isn't an essay by me in that. Um, uh, some fabulous essays and formal studies, very, very early pieces. Um, uh, there's one by Pascal uh, Lefebvre and uh, one by oh, um, Michael Cohen, who seems to have left academia on, uh, on Dick Tracy, 
uh, the Warren Beatty movie. So that just seemed like there needed to be a book. And this is before a lot of the big, you know, more recent movies had come out. But of course, there's already Tim Burton's Batman and the sequel, so there's the 78 Superman. Uh, and, and then um, uh, already there was, um, oh, <laughs> I'm losing uh, uh, Ghost World um, had come out and a couple of others like American Splendor. So a sort of a range of movies um, based on comics, graphic novels, whatever you want to call them. So that seemed like a book um, or a collection yeah, very, very important book. And we're going to talk about your Schultz book in just a second. Um, Ian, um, what is the Ian Gordon vision here? Uh, trained as an historian, but more as a kind of American studies, say, historian. Um, you've mentioned, of course, already this, the significance of comics, comic strips as a way to understand and enrich our understanding of history and culture. Um, material culture, uh, et cetera. But if you were to sum up your vision, your approach, your research program, what would that be? Well, it's quite disparate because I've moved through almost um, every kind of form that comics have taken, uh, at least in um, English speaking cultures um, and maybe not so much Western-speaking cultures. I, you know, I, I don't work really on the Franco-Belgian comics and I don't know that much about manga. Um, so I've been interested in, in the political economy of comics, what that means, how that works. Uh, I've been interested in notions of ideology and, and, and the ways those find expressions in comics. Um, although that's always a very tricky thing because, of course, there's ideology in comics. Um, there's ideology in everything. Um, I've been interested, you know, as somebody who's uh, lived on four continents, um, I've been interested in uh, what's, what's common uh, to comics um, or, or where can we, what, what can we do if we look at them in a comparative fashion by, by looking at genre? Uh, and so I, I, I did work on that because I, I had some uh, earlier background looking at an Australian kid comics strip. And of course, I looked at the American strip, Buster Brown, and I, I thought that there were some interesting comparisons that could be done there um, between uh, Australian, uh, American, English, and, um, and a French version of an American strip. So a lot of it um, is really just driven, like I guess a lot of academics really, by my own experiences, things that have interested me. Uh, partially, a lot of it's about trying to explain America's influence in the world. And then out of that, some of it's been about trying to explain with Superman. I, I could never figure out why Superman was so popular. I'm not a huge Superman fan. Um, as a kid, I was more of a Batman fan. But it, it just intrigued me. Why is Superman just so popular? Mm -hmm. uh, how does that actually work? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I, that's why I wrote that book. Because when I wrote that earlier essay, it just 
I changed my mind about certain aspects and I dug around a bit more and thought through and watched far too many, like all the episodes of Lois and Clark, all the episodes of The Adventures of Superman and all the episodes of Smallville. Um, <laughs> That's a lot. Um, you know, somebody saved me is in, ingrained in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, let so, me. Yeah, we're going to talk about your Superman uh, stuff in, in a second here, um, Ian. Um, right now, with, I mean, you're right. So, can I just tell you, my confession is that I am totally with you. I do not get the Superman fascination. I am. Like you, I was a total Batman guy. And what is up with this Superman? And you do this really amazing study where you look at radio and newsprint and comics and TV. So yeah, dig in here for us. Okay, so this, this study started, um, I, I mean, you could say it started in my kitchen um, in Sydney in, in 1994 when I saw that episode. Uh, but it, it really was on the back burner for, I hadn't really thought of doing anything more uh, until again, when I became the head of my department back in 2005, I, I thought I need a bigger project that, you know, the film and comic books, that's fine. That's bringing something out that's, that's going to engage me. Uh, but I need something that, um, that can be worked on now. Uh, and I employed a research assistant and, and got her to go and dig through enormous amounts of um, newspaper articles and uh, all sorts of episode guides. And, and I accumulated an enormous amount of material. And then I started to uh, read Superman comics, uh, comic books in 2007. Uh, and I, I couldn't get to the heart of it um, for the longest time. And I would draft articles and I would be unsatisfied with them. And, um, and then, you know, I published a few things uh, out of the Superman project. And eventually, um, I started to get the book in uh, to take shape. Um, and partially it was, it was taking the earlier article on um, Superman at the end of the American century. I never remember my own titles, but, you know, ideology, um, myth and nostalgia, and pulling that ideology, myth and nostalgia out and working on each of those aspects um, separately and expanding on them. And I changed my ideas a lot about that, um, about some of the... the, the very finely grained academic analysis there, I guess. Uh, but I also started to be more interested in, um, well, it's very, I've been long interested in intellectual property issues. So the long running uh, Jerry Siegel and family case against DC produced an enormous amount of, of um, legal documents. And many of those were, uh, letters between DC and um, Jack Lubowitz and, and Jerry Siegel and Whitney Ellsworth. And these were a fabulous resource. And, and fortunately, a, uh, a New York academic attorney named Jeff Trexler uh, put PDFs of this online. So I was able to access these 
um, from Singapore. And um, so I accumulated massive amounts of these and, and, and went through these and I was able to extract something of a, of a timeline and a conversation between DC and, and Jerry Siegel. So I could write something about the, the, the production conditions of, of Superman. Um, and what it meant for the authors and what authorship actually means mm. when we all know Superman's probably most famous tagline is truth, justice, and the American way, which Jerry Siegel didn't write. It was written by Robert Maxwell for the radio. Um, and then Olga Druce um, added on in the American way after um, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So, um, when you get that sort of situation, there's, there's something going on where we can't just ignore DC's role and just see them constantly as the bad guy um, who brutalized Siegel and Schuster. And, and Siegel and Schuster, incidentally, in today's money, in the 10 years between 38 and um, 1948, when Siegel uh, and Schuster uh, sued DC to get their try and get their copyrights back, which they failed, but in that 10 years, they've made, I think, about $3 million each in today's dollars. So they weren't entirely um, exploited, uh, in, in, entirely. I mean, I'm sure DC made a lot more money um, than they did, but it wasn't as though they sold their, their copyright for $130 and never saw uh, anything else. They got 10%. Um, of the of the merchandising rights, and if I remember correctly, it's in the book. <laughs> Look it up in the book. Don't listen to me. I'm the exact figure. But they also got 50-50 uh, split, if I remember rightly, on the newspaper comic strip, and that was very lucrative. Mm. So, um, I mean, I, I I wouldn't say that they weren't exploited. But I, I don't think they were treated quite as badly as people often think that they were. Yeah. So that aspect was something that I, I wanted to look at. And I also looked at fans um, by, by reading letters pages. And that was just an eye-opener. I mean, that, that was probably the most enjoyable part of doing it. I, I really loved reading all those old fan letters from the late 50s uh, through uh, while they were published. So, um, so if you were going to do the kind of elevator pitch version of why Superman is so wildly popular, or at least was, what would, what would you distill this down to? Like, what is it about this mythos? I would say, firstly, um, it's been in incredibly... Um, it may, may seem strange. DC understood what they had um, when they got it. They, when it started to prove popular, they knew they had something and they knew how to market it. And they went and did that. Um, for them to do that, to their mind, they needed to control the intellectual property. So you have that, you have that uh, two things happening that they own the intellectual property right to something that becomes incredibly popular uh, and they then go on to, to uh, exploit that, which is a legal term. Um, lawyers use that all the time, to exploit that property uh, for everything that they could. 
It also had, because it had so many incarnations very quickly on the radio, comic strip within a year, on the radio within a couple of years, the Flesher animated cartoons, which folks can find on YouTube, uh, because it had, and then those uh, other incarnations made it widely available. And then World War II uh, saw it become an incredibly popular comic book. The Army uh, Special Services of the Army Library Service, I think. Anyway, the Army, the US Army, distributed a special Army edition of the Superman comic book, um, which for years I, I read about it in a history of the Army Library Service, and I'd never been able to find it, but on um, the Grand Comic Book uh, for issue 27, they have an alternate cover of the Army edition of the Superman comic book. So all of these combine to make Superman incredibly popular. And then DC was smart enough to put it on TV in the 50s. And then that just locked in um, a, a younger audience uh, also. So smart marketing um, really, in many ways, has, has made Superman what he is the, as, a, as a, such a popular figure. And, fan engagement. Um, you see in the letters pages how, how deeply engaged fans were uh, with Superman. And it's not as though everybody actually loved it. I, I think a lot of people kind of found it goofy and that they liked it. I, I having read a lot of these earlier ones um, or gone back and, and read some of the crazy 1950s, 1960s ones, I really like those because they're so off the wall. They're just, they're insane. Um, and that, that I, as a kid, of course, you know, oh, Marvel was so much cooler. But to go back and look at these DC ones, it's like they were trying anything and everything. And I can't but help think to, to having read those, just the way it must have um, opened up people's minds to what was possible in a story, that you could really tell a story about anything mm. um, in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah. That's, uh, that's part of the appeal. I mean, that's not an elevated pitch, <laughs> which yeah. is probably why I'm a historian. <laughs> no, no, that's really insightful. Thank you, Ian. Um, uh, you've got, you continue to do work in, uh, at least on the superhero, and in this co-edited volume with Liam and um, Angela, you really interrogate or push, put some pressure on the symbol itself. Um, what about the symbol? And then my follow-up question is, um, gosh, I mean, yeah, there's some not so good superhero movies. Um, uh, you know, Marvel, DC, big two reconstructions and the big silver screen, but there's some also some pretty good ones. Um, so yeah, let's start with what, what about that symbol? And then, you know, do we really have to kind of talk about Marvel Cinematic Universe or superhero movies as not cinema? Uh, well, this, this volume is uh, part of an Australian Research Council um, major grant um, about um, in excess of $300,000, uh, which uh, there's a follow-up volume in, in the works at the moment. Um, we looked at, uh, we, we shaped it around the symbol because uh, we were looking at, as, as the cover shows, the ways um, that superheroes are often 
uh, evoked um, either very directly or indirectly in uh, social social movements. Um, and of course, uh, you know, around comicscape and around you know, various aspects um, of people accusing uh, of folks who want to use superheroes uh, in social justice movements as somehow um, introducing politics to comics, which is always highly amusing given that Captain America punched um, Hitler in the face and uh, that Superman's very early episodes, he was, his first episode, he's trying to stop a person being wrongly executed um, due to failings in the court system. So, uh, yeah, superheroes have always been involved in social justice. That's the whole notion of superheroes. So we're, we were looking at, at those. We were looking at very broadly at symbols, including things like intellectual property. Um, and there's a fabulous uh, uh, chapter in, in the book on uh, She-Hulk uh, as an as a intellectual property lawyer, um, which is just is one of my favourite chapters. Um, and then you know, I, but it's it's not just intellectual property; it's it's the other symbolic functions uh, of superheroes, and these are quite wide and and, and varied um, in, in the ways that they're being used. So um, the book really covers a gamut of those, and I wish, of course, being at home, that's the one book that I don't have at home with me. Um, as a physical hard copy to quickly have a look through again. Um, but it, it really, it's, um, it's, it's, it deals with things like Irish representation, which uh, Liam Hoops works in Australia, but it's Irish, um, uh, does it has a wonderful chapter on that. It also is pretty good because it's got interviews with Paul Binney and, uh, and other figures uh, as well. Um, industry players and it came out of a conference in Melbourne that had um, Hope Larson and Paul Dini as, as public speakers and uh, Henry Jenkins uh, was also meant to be there but he uh, had unfortunately um, wasn't able to come but did his uh, talk uh, by Skype, the wonders of technology um, and uh, so it was a big public facing event produce this produce this book well speaking of henry jenkins then so how do you answer this uh, uh this scorsese comment i like scorsese movies i mean just in general i like um movies that um are more plot uh, narrative driven than uh, and character driven close tight studies uh, but it's a bit sniffy um, to just say, well, he said they're not cinema. So perhaps he has, you know, we use film, movies and cinema sometimes interchangeably, but perhaps he has in mind cinema is a certain kind of category of, of what we might at other times call movies or films. Look, um, Graham Greene, the English novelist who's the late English novelist, uh, used to, he has about 30, 40 novels, and he divided his novels into two kind of categories, entertainments and uh, serious literature. Now, I, for one, had read a lot of Graham Greene, and I'm not quite sure what the difference is, 
Um, but maybe I'm just not a careful enough reader. But I would say that Marvel movies are entertainments. And then the sort of things where you go in and, you know, you're not really going there to have your mind expanded in, in various ways or, or to be overly troubled. They're escapist there and they're, they're with occasionally serious themes. But by and large, you, you're going in there for, for a dose of hope that everything's going to be all right in the end, like half the world can die and plot spoiler, it works out okay, more or less. Some people still have to die, but not half the world. So we're not going to see Marvel movies for, for deep significance. We're going to see them for some, some diversion from, you know, some, some of the day-to-day, the, the -day, you know, woes of being humans, which, you know, are just part of being humans indeed. But a bit of diversion is not a bad thing. Now, if they're sucking all the dollars out of the movie industry, and so movies that challenges aren't getting made, yeah, then then on that, yes, that is a problem. And but that happens in Hollywood all the time. Um, you know, after after the independent filmmakers like uh, Francis Ford Coppola produced a lot of great movies, suddenly all Hollywood wanted was those kind of movies. They didn't want musicals. They didn't want so other, other genres. So um, I think we're just in that superhero movie moment and I suspect that will pass um, and we'll still have some, but they won't suck all the dollars available for making movies. Um, hopefully they won't take them up, but they'll take them up enough to give us some nice escapist fare uh, from time to time. Jumping kind of back a little bit to your your uh, your passion, your early passion that kind of launched your career. Um, let's peanuts. I mean, this is a beloved light strip, and so much a part. I mean, if we're talking about Superman as a kind of pervasive mythos, well, peanuts is easily that as well. What? Why study peanuts? Uh, I, I, I learned so much um, as a co-editor of this book, and I, I came to the project a little late, but um, I, I read all the chapters. I, I can't say um, that any of them, really, that I can recall needed a lot of input, um, a little bit here and there. But they, it, it is a really, um, um, it's a really strong book. Uh, and it has, it takes different aspects uh, of, of Charlie Brown. So it opens um, with a piece by uh, Ben Saunders um, on um, Peppermint Patty. And that is just a fantastic analysis of, uh, of, of both the complexity of Peppermint Patty and also Schultz's common decency. And I think one of the things that runs through Peanuts that makes it so strong is that uh, Charles Schultz, was, he was just a decent human being. And, and the strip is about what it means to be a human being and, and, and some of the problems of, of that. So from that, you, you can open up all sorts of angles um, to, to study the strip. Um, and there's some wonderful ones. And, and just... 
I was flicking through it today and um, Leo, uh, Leonie really has this wonderful chapter of, on sincerity in peanuts. Um, and, and she talks, she concludes by saying, Charles Schultz understood this, which is the complexity of humans, the difficulty of being a human being. Um, he understood that and he articulates with soft, gentle clarity that sincerity is important, mysterious and difficult. Uh, and uh, truly, how can he lose when he's so sincere? So it's sort of like it's, she focuses a bit on the way that plots for Lucy always pulls the football away from Charlie Brown when he's trying to kick it, and how Charlie Brown is such a sincere person that he's, he's always drawn into that, how Schultz presents this, it, it's the strip as a whole, this. It's, it's humor works kind of the irony of, of, of human behavior, our, our capacity to want to believe in things, um, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I, I, I honestly, secretly, um, I think my chapter is one of the weaker chapters in the book, although one person really liked it, because um, I write about Charlie Brown's reception in, or Peanuts' reception in Asia. Um, but the other, most of the other chapters are engaging with peanuts through various themes um, that you will find in it, like sports or uh, you know, Snoopy um, as, as the mascot for um, the Apollo missions, um, uh, that you have just its place in American culture and, and indeed around the world um, is, is just kind of staggering. And I think it all boils down to just the way that very gently uh, Schultz understood humans, poked a little bit of fun at a little bit of gentle fun at us all, um, but in such a loving manner that, that people can read into it um, all sorts of things. And, and, and yet at the same time, Schultz put things in there that it's hard not to come away understanding that, yeah, that Peppermint Patty, she's, she's queer, probably. So, um, yeah, I, I think hats off to him. He, he, you know, this aspect, you know, his African-American characters yeah. <laughs> could have been better, but um, that said, at least his was a whole lot better than when Hank Ketchum and Dennis the Menace um, tried to do it. So. Yeah, a very special place in all of our uh, sort of hearts. Um, we've, you've, you are a man of the archives. This is you here, um, I believe, with us uh, at OSU. Is that right? Yeah. Looks that's, that's in the Billy Island, and up yeah. front, that's Eddie Campbell. And yeah. then that's uh, Christina Meyer uh, from, from Germany. And then that's me in the back, which is great. Yep. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, the way the desks are, I didn't recognize it at first, but yeah, yep. Um, Which is good that I'm way in the back because I've lost a bit of um, so <laughs> can't see how heavy I was. You, you also, you teach, you, you had a big MOOC that was really popular that you have transformed into an, um, an online course for your university. Um, you, of course, are a beloved teacher of comics. So what... What is the, say, trademark Ian Gordon classroom comic moment or technique or something? Yeah. 
Um, well, you know, I a lot of folks teach comics. I don't so much teach comics. My my course is called Superhero Entertainments, and it's it's a sort of a history of the political economy of superheroes. So I do start with comic strips because I want to latch on to one of the things that made comic strips so commercially popular was these distinctive characters from the yellow kid to Buster Brown and, and then onwards through you know, Charlie Brown and so on and so on. So, and that these distinctive characters were marketable outside of, of comics um, in other forms, um, be it in dolls or with Buster Brown. Uh, for years and years, there were Buster Brown shoes and Buster Brown textiles, you know, um, there's even Buster Brown milk. So this sort of marketability of distinctive characters uh, was important. When superheroes came along um, with, with Superman, uh, DC uh, understood the importance of, of, of marketing these characters. Um, and that this, now we have a word for it, it's called transmedia now. But this kind of approach um, uh, to, to marketing meant, as I said earlier, that Superman very early had a lot of other media incarnations. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the way that there's an interrelationship between um, comic characters as commodities and then there's sort of broader symbolic worth as icons or as beloved figures, whatever symbols, uh, whatever term you want to kind of hold on to for the way we interact with these um, and, and, and perhaps uh, use them as reference points for, for moral judgments uh, in, in various other aspects of the way we live. So I tend to look at um, are superheroes, yeah. the two questions I said in my course um, have long been uh, are superheroes among mythology? And the other question is, you know, is the status of superheroes as commodities their most important function? Mm. And there's no answer to that. There's no right or wrong answer to those. Um, I get wonderful responses from students. Of course, I get some not so wonderful but I get arguments on both sides that, you know, superheroes are on mythology. And I, I get all sorts of answers there um, that range from they play a social function that gives them a status as mythology to they simply reflect, um, you know, they're, they're modern versions of Hercules and Mercury and, and so on. Um, and then I get answers about whether they're commodities on both sides. Some say, well, you know, it's their iconic or symbolic status that drives their, their value as a commodity. And other people say it's their status, you know, the values that we attribute to them and our engagement with them that make them important as commodities. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've become one of these wishy-washy academics and go, oh yeah, oh, that's, that's right. Oh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> So I'm no longer quite sure what I think. So, um, yeah. but that's I mean that's that's a good thing to, yeah. to let students kind of explore this question to not have a firm answer in mind, um, to look for the quality of kind of arguments they they can they can bring to it. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so um, I'm gonna so. Where do you see the vitality in comics and comics studies today, um, Ian? 
Uh, I I think it's in the young in the there's a younger group of scholars who are recently finished their PhDs um, or or um, maybe not so recently. Um, one of our Ohio State University applied this work. I need to hold that in front of myself. You can see my apartment doesn't look out over um, the fabulous downtown Singapore. This is a great book uh, on the Yellow Kid by Christina Meyer that she was researching in that photo. Um, and it's just fabulous. And of course, it's from Ohio State University Press. So they'll be very happy in me plugging it. And she is one of the you know, younger scholars who's out there uh, doing fabulous work. Another one, because I'm going to plug books, uh, I'm sitting here that I had near me, is Paul Williams' wonderful book on uh, the sort of the origins of, of graphic novels, um, dreaming the graphic novel, how uh, comics artists and writers who long wanted to do uh, work that um, really pushed them and, and let them uh, deal with more complex subjects um, brought the graphic novel to be. That's a fabulous book. And then there's this whole Palgrave series, and, and this is just one by Marty Nubbin, and uh, ben, Benoit Prefix um, on comics and memory. But there's some fabulous work coming out um, in that. It's too expensive. Um, go and look for it in the library and just bring a link. Um, but that Calgrave series has some great, some great work. There's so many, you know, when I started doing work on comics, I was a historian and I said, you know, I'm a historian, because there wasn't comic scholarship. And as comic scholarship developed, it was always a majority of guys. And these days, that's just shifted so much. Um, and when you go to these academic conferences on comics, the majority are, are women. And that's brought a vitality uh, to it. Um, I, I could start naming names. I, I should probably mention uh, Leah Mesmer, whose who's work I, I really enjoy particularly the work on, on fans um, and the ways that she's uh, fought through this uh, correspondence zones. Mm. Um, but there are just so many others. Um, you know, once I start naming names, um, I'm, I'm going to leave people out, which I, I don't want to do. What about um, comics themselves? Uh, what are you reading? What's exciting to you right now? I'm looking at what I actually put on. Um, I, 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 I hurriedly, before we had to leave our offices, um, I bought a, finally bought a copy of Asterisk uh, Pollock um, and it arrived. And unfortunately, in my haste, I bought a Spanish um, copy. So I'm going to have to work on my Spanish or, or perhaps if I ever get to travel again, I'll bring it and give it to you. Um, um, what else am I reading at the moment, comics-wise? Uh, I've got Guts um, um, sitting here, and I've got, um, I love work uh, by the Tamaki, by the cousins, the Tamaki. So I've got Harley Quinn uh, by Mariko Tamaki sitting here, and I'm looking forward to further work um, that she's doing, is it Wonder Woman? Did I have that right? I think I, I read somewhere. 
Um, and of course, I've got guts, um, which after I read it, I'm, I'm giving to my younger nieces and nephews. Um, so I, I think, yeah, these are um, these are the things that I've been reading more lately. Um, I don't like a lot of superhero current superhero comics, but um, I have to be more selective about those, and I tend not to read. Um, comics these days, except for academic purposes, which tends to be a while. <laughs> so, well, we have a finite num uh, number of hours in the day, and um, completely understandable. Um, so, gosh, and thank you for joining me from Singapore. Um, clearly, comics matter. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's it's been a pleasure.